So I'm starting to notice a trend. Uh, when Taylor leaves, he gives me really easy passages to preach on. Um, but all, all kidding aside, it's always a joy for me to be here and a joy to come back. So if this is your first time or you come in frequently, so do I. So it's okay. Maybe we can work on that together. Um, but for those of you who don't know me or haven't met me yet, Taylor and I went through uh, the church planning residency with the Houston Church Planning Network together, and he became a good friend, and so um, it's always a joy for me to come and to be able to fill in for him when uh, he just needs a Sunday off or he needs to get away with his family, and so that's what they're doing today, and it's, I, I love to be here uh, serving you and serving him and helping him in this way. Um, so if you wouldn't mind, I'd like to pray for us again. Uh, this is a hard passage, and it's not always easy to respond with thanks be to God, a passage like Lamentations, but there is something in it for us, something good and something fruitful, and I think our time will be well spent. So let's pray again quickly and get into this. Father, we thank you that you are a loving Father who loves us enough to speak hard words to us, to speak challenging words. We pray, God, that you would allow us to receive these heavy words, this hard message, uh, as a gift, and that we would not be caught up in the heaviness of it, but we would be able to see your goodness behind it. We'd be able to see how this has led to redemption and redemptive uh, effects in the lives of your people and ultimately in our lives. So we pray that your Holy Spirit would be here in a way that Helps me to teach that is clear and helpful, but also helps all of us to receive your word, that you would speak to us now through it. We pray that you would be pleased with this time together and that you would receive all of this as, uh, as worship to you. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. She would have been a good woman, the misfit said, if there had been someone to hold a gun to her head her whole life. If you've read the story the short story by Flannery O'Connor called A Good Man is Hard to Find, you'll remember that line. It's a line that comes near the end of the story when uh, this ex-con has dispatched with an entire family. And at the face of it, we could say, and this is a horribly depressing story, I don't know why Flannery wrote this thing. But when we get into the story and we can get beyond the Facade, we recognize this is not a tragedy, but an exploration of grace. Because what the story is, if you're not familiar with it, it's the story of a family that goes on a family trip. They get in the car and they drive off. And it doesn't take a whole lot of time before we recognize that this family, this grandmother, her son, and his family, and his kids, this is one of the most dysfunctional families out there. They're manipulative, they're uh, self-obsessed, they're concerned about themselves, totally turned in on themselves. And every scene along the way just confirms that these people, they, they're socially respectable, they look good, they've got everything together, but they're some pretty terrible people. And the grandmother in particular has been manipulating and deceiving and uh, conniving this whole trip. And all of those manipulations and everything gets them to the place where their family has had a horrible car accident. And their car is flipped over, they're laying on the side of the road, they're hurt, they don't know what to do. And what they think is someone coming to help them is actually this ex-con that they had heard about. 
And he quickly dispatches with the family. And then the longest scene in the story is this ex-con who at one point says that there's no pleasure in the world but meanness. In other words, the only thing he's ever found pleasure in is hurting and killing people. And this grandmother who has spent the whole story and apparently her whole life defining whether or not someone was a good man based on what she perceived to be good, the degree to which they matched up with her, she's now pleading with this man, trying to manipulate and coerce him into saving her life. He eventually dispatches with this old woman too. And Flannery describes this poor old woman as laying there with her legs crossed under her like a child's and her face smiling up at the cloudless sky. She had finally, in this worst moment of her life, finally, for the first time, understood grace. And Flannery describes her as like a child, meant to echo back to us the words of Jesus that unless you become like a child, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And we know that even in this terrible circumstance, this moment was also a moment of grace for this self-proclaimed misfit. Because no sooner has he said, there is no pleasure in this world but meanness, and then he ends the life of this grandmother, that he, his friend who wants to celebrate this, the last words of the story are the misfit saying, there's no pleasure in this. That in the midst of a hard moment, this moment of crisis led both of these people to repentance. And what, what appears at first to be a very sordid tale, a very uh, tragic, depressing story about what seems to be like evil is winning is actually a powerful picture of grace. And I would contend that Lamentations is the Bible's version of a good man is hard to find. There are hard words in this book. It is heavy for us to realize. And there's a reason you don't see a lot of churches advertising, hey, come to our uh, service this Sunday. We've gonna ha- we're going to have some great coffee. There's going to be some good music. Uh, and we're going to have a wonderful sermon series on why God hates you and you're terrible in Lamentations, our six-month study. There's a reason we don't do that because it's hard and it's heavy. And on first reading, it seems like that's all the message is, that, wow, God hates us and we're terrible. But one of the things I'm convinced of, and I know Taylor is convinced also, which is why you as a church are going through this book of Lamentations, it's the fact that hard truths, hard texts, uh, carry wonderful treasure. And if we will be willing to be offended long enough, have our social sensibilities of what is appropriate and acceptable and what is heavy or too much, if we're willing to let that be offended long enough, then what we will actually find in God's word to us through Lamentations 2 is a word of tremendous grace, a word that is tremendously redemptive, an instruction even to us on how to be angry in the right way. Because we have to be willing to let the anger that God shows his people here at their unrelenting self-destruction. We have to be willing to learn from that. And to learn that anger in all of its forms is not something to be run from, but anger in the right way, in the proper expression, and anger that leads us back to God. That's good anger. That's godly anger. That's anger that engages with the brokenness of this world and in us. 
and knows it shouldn't be like this. But that very same sort of anger also says that it won't be forever. And until that day, I won't be comfortable with it. I won't be okay with it. And so when we get into a chapter like Lamentations chapter 2, in this season of Lent, what we want is to discipline our imaginations. To be willing to see ourselves on this journey, not away from God and not towards hopefully pleasing God, but away up the hill to a place of hope. Because this book is actually structured in that way. We're on our way up. The most hopeful part of Lamentations in these series of poems is in chapter 3. So we're on our way up. Hope doesn't just come at the end of the story. It comes in the middle. But we have to walk the hard road to it. But hope, hard won, is also hard to lose. And so this morning what we want to do is we want to learn how to be angry with God. Not angry at him, not angry against him, but angry with him, joining him in the anger that he shows us against sin, coming alongside him in the anger at our own self-destructive habits, in the ways that we burn down our own world around us. Because of all the ways we're so convinced that the thing that's going to give me life is actually the thing that destroys me. And so what we want is to learn how to be angry. Some of us maybe for the first time. Because some of us maybe don't know how. So the first thing we have to learn is we want to, in learning to be angry with God, is that we have to learn to be angry at the right things. Look at verses 1 through 10. I won't read them all. But one of the things that's interesting, and I know Taylor mentioned this to you last week, is that each chapter, with the exception of chapter 5, is what's known as an acrostic. And it's harder to bring into our English, but in the original Hebrew, each verse starts with the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So what we see first off in chapter 2, as long as some of the other chapters, is that God's anger is both thorough but contained. The fact that He works through this uh, imposed structure, as we would say, from A to Z, means that God sees everything accurately. He's got the whole picture, and He knows what is distressing. He sees what's destructive, and He knows what ought to be angry about. And when we look at some of this language, it's, it's very sincere, and it's very strong. In verse 2, we're told that the Lord has swallowed up. In verse 3, that He cut down. In verse 4, that He bent His bow. In verse 5, that He became like an enemy. In verse 6, that He laid waste His booth. In verse 7, that He scorned His altar. In verse 8, that He determined to lay in ruins the wall. This is strong language. And we also notice the concepts, the things that God is expressing His anger about. It has to do with the city itself. It has to do with the people. It has to do with their political allegiances. It has to do with their spiritual corruption. It has to do with their self-deception. He sees all of the ways that sin has trickled in. Those of us who share a Reformed faith, we would refer to it often as total depravity. And it doesn't mean that everything and everyone is as bad as it can be, but that everything in this world is affected. It's complete, comprehensive, that sin touches everything. So much so that Paul will say in Romans 8 that even creation groans because even the trees feel the weight of our sin. 
God's anger is thorough, but it's contained because the fact that eventually the letters run out. So he can't just keep going on and on and angry forever, and the fact is God doesn't remain angry forever. His his anger can be sincere, it can be strong, but it doesn't go on without end. God's anger has its place, and God's anger is controlled, but God's anger also comes to an end because there's only so many letters in the alphabet. But for you and I, I think this is where we start to struggle, is that I, I can't think of a whole lot of examples of human beings who always consistently expressed anger in this way that is controlled and contained and yet with a definite end. And part of that challenge is uh, anger is powerful. It's a strong emotion. In fact, gentlemen, it's about the only emotion we feel free to express and because we suppress so much other emotion, when we feel anger, we feel it a thousand percent. Because it's the only time we feel free to let anger out. But the fact that God's anger is both thorough and yet contained, it shows us that He's not rash. He's not explosive. He doesn't go from being kind one moment to just raging in the next. He's patient. He is kind. And even when He revealed Himself to Moses, He said He is slow to anger. And how many of us rush to anger so fast when we have like this much of the picture? We, we have an, an inaccurate or incomplete perception of what somebody said or why they did that or why they slighted me over somebody else. And so we'll create this whole scenario that's basically why everyone else is a horrible person and I'm a victim here. And we do it politely, right? We do it in our cars. Because when it finally bubbles up, we can scream at our steering wheel and everyone else is doing it, so no one's looking at me screaming at my steering wheel, so it's fine. And that's our experience with anger. And so when we see God get so angry, it can be scary. And the fact is, the other fact is that I know that even those of us who, most of us, I would assume, have grown up in relatively healthy homes with relatively healthy people, and yet some of us have experienced someone in your life who was that explosively angry person. And so anytime there's even the slightest bit of intensity, it makes you nervous. Because anger was never safe. Anger was never expressed in a way that showed that it was concerned about my health and well-being. It was concerned about my safety. It only ever seemed to be against me because I was inconveniencing something, keeping someone from what they wanted or hindering someone else's progress and promotion at work. And anger like that isn't godly. It's not helpful. It's not redemptive. It's part of that turning in on ourselves our self-obsessed, self-destructive patterns. So we have to, we have to, we have to, we have to let God teach us how to be angry at the right things. And the things that God is angry about are things that are so destructive, things that are so devastating, things that may benefit one person, but they destroy the lives of a hundred others. 
And the other thing about God's anger that we see here is that it, it may be strong, but it's forewarned. So some of the language that the writer uses is specifically out of Deuteronomy chapter 28, the very place that when Moses was for the second time confirming the covenant with God's people, for the second time he's saying, hey, here are the blessings and the benefits. As long as you keep the covenant, this is what God's going to give you. But you also need to know this is what happens when you turn on God. And that was almost a thousand years before this point. So for almost a millennia, in every day since, God had been warning His people and calling His people, don't do this, don't turn away from these things. Horrible things will happen. Destruction will come to you. Because we can't do whatever we want and expect blessing from God to come. Because God has not made the world to work that way. So for example, in verse 15, The writer says, all who pass along the way clap their hands at you. They hiss and wag their heads at the daughter of Jerusalem. Is this the city that was called the perfection of beauty, the joy of all the earth? Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 37, he warns his people, you will become a thing of horror and an object of scorn and ridicule to all the nations where the Lord will drive you. That's come true. They're living it. Also in verse 20 of Lamentations 2, the writer says, look, O Lord, and see, with whom have you, have you dealt thus? Should women eat the fruit of their own womb, the children of their tender care? Should priest and prophet be killed in the sanctuary of God? Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 53, the Lord warns, warns them, you will eat the fruit of your womb, the flesh of your sons and daughters, whom the Lord your God has given you, in the siege and in the distress with which your enemies will distress you. And these quotations are sprinkled throughout the whole book. And what he's wanting to communicate is what has come on us, what has fallen on us. We knew this would happen. To live in such stubborn rebellion and resistance to God for a millennia shows God's patience, but it also shows that God's consistent thousand years. I'm, I'm having a good day if I tell my son, hey, don't do this, and this is going to be the punishment, and 20 minutes later, I still remember that. God is consistent, and He's intentional. He knows what sin brings, and He had been warning His people for so long. So the, remi- the writer is reminding us, yes, this anger is thorough. Yes, it's contained, but it is also, it was, we were told, This isn't a surprise. We knew about this. And it's come on us, not because God is impossible to please, but because he was so relentlessly patient, but eventually he knew you've got to discipline the kids. And so considering then for us, how then do we learn how to be angry at the right things? The first is just simply that we have to recognize that what God is angry about is in part both individual and systematic that is harming people, that is leading them away from the very thing that will give them life and hope and a future. 
And so when we express our anger, we, we can't just be content with getting angry because someone cut us off on the road, especially if the best we feel is maybe uh, indifference at the fact that our brothers and sisters in Christ have been nothing short of a genocide these last couple of years in the Middle East. And the powers that be do seem to do very little about it. When was the last time that we were angry about that? When was the last time that when an election cycle came around and we recognized, wow, we as a people, we, we put a whole lot of hope, a whole lot of trust, a whole lot of confidence in our political leaders, and yet we don't campaign for prayer and seeking God like this. And if we do, it's, it's kind of self-righteous. We need to get those horrible pagans out there to start coming to our church so they can be like us. So we have to start doing that inventory. What are the things that really make me angry? When I feel that, and I feel it strongly, what is it? Is it simply something doesn't go my way? Someone doesn't treat me the way that I want? Or do we feel it when we see our friends and our family so burdened by sin and so weighed down by the things that other people have sinned against them and they just can't get away from it. What do we feel angry about? Because we've got to learn to be angry at the right things. If we want the redemptive anger that we see God offer, we have to be angry at the right things. We have to be angry at the things that enslave us. We have to be angry at the things that steal life from people. We have to be angry against corruption and uh, other processes that demean the value of human beings. We have to be angry at the ways that we make it more difficult for people to come to God. We have to let God teach us how to be angry at the right thing. Secondly, we have to allow ourselves to actually feel anger. And this is one that I recognize is going to be harder for most of us, but look at what the author does starting in verse 11, that he says, my eyes are spent with weeping, my stomach churns, my bile's poured out to the ground because of the destruction of the daughter of my people. He's sick to his stomach. And in verse 13, he's left speechless. What can I say for you? What can I compare you, daughter of Jerusalem? Who else has God treated like this? He, he doesn't know what to say. He doesn't even know what to make of it. But here's the, here's the heart of it. Verse 14. Look at this. He says, Your prophets have seen for you false and deceptive visions. They have not exposed your iniquity to restore your fortunes, but have seen for you oracles that are false and misleading. And here's the thing. Israel had been all over the place spiritually. I mean, from the moment they left Egypt, they were already going, man, life was a little bit better back in Egypt, you know? Remember what we had there? We had watermelons, we had all of this food, we just have this manna that comes from the sky every single day, and we don't even have to work that hard to get it, but man, there we had, we had melons. I mean, that fast, how quickly God's people just go, this isn't that great. And ever since then, 
one thing after another, turning to whether it was trusting in political powers over the Lord or whether it was making spiritual compromises in their worship or their behavior, one thing or another, they were a mess. They were all over the place. They had been running after every spiritual fad they could get their hands on. They were willing to try anything to fill their bellies because they, like us, were consumed with sex, money, and power. And their prophets and their priests and their spiritual leaders, they were in on it all. They only told the people what they wanted to hear. They only said, I've got a vision, things that the people wanted to see. And it's not that God only ever speaks hard things to us because he doesn't. But when he does, it's for a reason. It's for a purpose. Because if only these prophets and these priests had spoken those hard words. Look at the heart of what he says. That if they, well, they had not exposed your iniquity, but if they had, the result would have been a restoration of their fortunes. Because we, we know now on this side of the cross that the way up in the kingdom of God is the way down. The way to life is to not suffocate out our sin and our unrighteousness, but to expose it, to bring it to the light. As one well-known pastor has said many times, nothing good grows in the dark. So the way to life is not trying to crush those things out and hide them and press them down deep, but to bring them out, to bring them to the light. Because as James says in James chapter 5, that if we confess our sins to one another, we would be healed. And in the context, he's talking about physical healing, those who are sick. Maybe there's a spiritual component. But there's also a principle there. That when we confess our sin, when we name it, there's a freedom and a healing that comes from that. And most of the time when we talk about sin and we talk about how we feel about it, we don't use the word anger. The best I've seen that we ever feel comfortable saying is that I'm struggling with it. I'm really struggling with this lying. I'm really struggling with this greed. And we only use it for respectable sins. Man, I'm really struggling with eat, eating too much. And I feel like we use that language because we don't feel the freedom to admit, I actually kind of like this sin. I, I enjoy it. And I, I want it to go away, but not really. As St. Augustine famously prayed about his sexual sin, God, take it away, but not yet. That's how most of us feel. Whether we're caught up in pornography or some other kind of sexual sin, or whether we're caught up in substance abuse, or we're using food or retail therapy to sort of push down what we feel, because we don't want to deal with it. We don't want to deal with what God is trying to show us and stir up in us. We're not finding the freedom that we think. And so we talk about, well, I'm struggling with it. Because we don't want to admit, I kind of like this thing. And that's part of the problem. The best we can say is, man, I'm struggling. I'm struggling. Rather than really being able to name it honestly. To speak openly about it. Not so that we can celebrate it. And not so that we can just throw to, the, to anyone who wants to listen, hear all my sins, hear all of my terrible things. Why don't you just come and listen to it? Not to appeal to some voyeurism that we have. 
because of this promise. The promise that is all throughout Scripture, all throughout God's dealings with His people, is that if you will come to me, if you will confess your sins, what does John tell us? He is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we don't just have to learn to be angry at the right things. We have to allow ourselves to be angry in the right way. To be angry at the things that we have given ourselves over to or the ways that other people have sinned against us and so that's created a pattern in our lives. You can be angry at that. You can be angry at the way that sin is ruling over us. We can be angry at the destruction that's come into our lives. We can be angry at the wounds that we carry because of sin. Because that's God's heart. So many of the places in Scripture when we see God angry, it's because of this. In Numbers chapter 22, when uh, Balaam, this prophet for hire, has been sent to curse God's people as they're wandering in the wilderness, the final and last time when this guy tries to go to Israel and curse them, we're told that God was angry. Why? Because he wanted to speak life stealing words, corrupting words to God's people. He wanted to pose as a prophet, one who spoke for God and speak to them lies. Lies that would confuse them, lies that would lead them astray, lies that would lead them to question who God is and ultimately lies that would destroy them in the wilderness. And God was angry at that. Jesus was angry when he came into the temple and he's. He said that he saw people buying and selling, that they turned a place of worship, a place that people were supposed to be able to come and expose their sinful hearts and find freedom and healing from God, instead became a place to make money, became a place to take advantage of those foreign seekers who were just trying to find God and they heard a rumor, maybe he's in Jerusalem. Jesus was angry and he made a whip and he drove out the animals and he flipped the tables not to make a mess, but as a way to show I'm turning all of this on its head because this is not what this place is for. Jesus was angry when he finally came to Bethany and he saw that his friend Lazarus was dead and he stood at the tomb. He was angry. The language that John uses, it's like a war horse who's snorting, eager to run into battle. Jesus was angry because sin took his friend and it looked like death had the last word. We need to be angry like that. Angry at the way that sin has come into our lives and turned everything inside out. The ways that we run so quickly to believe the same lie over and over and over again and it gets us into the same cycle and then God feels so far away and we wonder how could he love me? Because all it takes is a mean word. All it takes is my spouse not treating me kindly enough. And I'm just back in this cycle of sin. But learning to be angry in the right way, that can be redemptive. That can mean that we are recognizing with God, I don't want this thing in my life anymore. And I don't know what to do about it, but at least at being angry at this sin, I'm starting to feel and share God's heart. Because God, too, as a loving father, is angry at the things that destroy his kids. So we have to learn to 
let God teach us how to feel rightly anger, angry again. And this is hard for us because, again, we haven't seen it well. We haven't seen this modeled well. And most of us, uh, like my wife who studied counseling, what she says that when we feel powerless, we power up in anger. And that's what we do. Anger is powerful. And we feel powerless. We feel like maybe we can get a little bit out of people if we're angry. Because maybe it'll intimidate somebody or make them take me seriously or they'll finally listen to me and do what I want. But real anger, godly anger, anger that we learn from God, that sees sin for what it is, destructive, corrosive, parasitical, anger that doesn't lead to self-loathing, but anger that leads to redemption. That's what we need to learn from Him. That's how we need to learn how to feel when we feel anger. So the, the final question, the final thing, is we consider all of that, what, what does that mean? How can anger be redemptive? Well, what we see the writer do in Lamentations 2 in these last couple of verses is his response to the anger of God leads him to God. Look at what he does in verse 19. He calls the other people, rise, cry out in the night. At the beginning of the night watches, pour out your heart like water before the presence of the Lord. Lift your hands to him for the lives of your children. Look, O Lord, and see with whom have you dealt thus. In the dust of the streets by the young and the old. This, this man, he, he turns to God. Sensing this anger, what it, what it does is prompt him to turn to God and to recognize there's nowhere else to go. Anger is redemptive when it starts to peel away those things that have kept us from God. When we recognize that the response to the sin in our lives is not to run away, it's not to hide, it's not to diminish it, it's not to speak little of it, but it's to bring it to God, it's to bring it to light, it's to begin to learn to feel along with Him at the destructive patterns in our life, and so we cry out to Him. And we say, God, what we want most of all is You. What we want most of all is to understand your purposes. What is it you have for us? And how does this square with your promises? The anger of God leads this man back to God. That's godly anger. Godly anger doesn't lead us to lash out at the people around us. It doesn't lead us to blame others. It leads us to his feet to go, God, what do we do? How do you want to redeem this? How do you want to make this right? Because again, consider the moments when God himself got angry and Jesus is standing before the tomb that holds the body of his friend Lazarus and he is angry, he is raging, he is grieving. It is in that moment that the people there in Bethany understand Jesus' words, I am the resurrection and the life. That God in his anger undoes the power of sin and death. He reverses it. He removes it. And nowhere is this more clear than on the cross. When God himself took on the anger of God. So that as Paul says, he could be both just and the justifier of sin. God took all of the penalty on himself. Jesus Christ took all the penalty on himself and let himself be ripped apart. 
so that 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 sin and that separation between us and him could be taken away from, could be taken away from us, so that people like Paul later, with the help of the Holy Spirit, he could say, be an imitator of me as I imitate Christ. The power of sin and death is removed and that the Spirit has come on God's people so that we can truly be like Him. Because that's what He wants for us. To be like Him. To know Him. To see Him face to face. And so between now and then, between that day when we finally get to see Him face to face, we let Him teach us, God, how do, how do we be angry in the right way with the right things? Show us how to Turn that anger against sin into prayers to you. Because as I mentioned, and as we close, we'll lead into a time of communion. Because as I mentioned, that no place is this more evident, the redemptive power of anger against sin than in the death and resurrection of Christ. That when God made this covenant to Abraham, All of those centuries before, even Deuteronomy 28, what was the heart of it? He said, Abraham, you stay there. I'm going to make this covenant with you and with my people. And if you break this covenant, let me be ripped apart. And if I break this covenant, which you won't, let me be ripped apart. God takes all the the penalty of sin on himself, so that his anger against sin is now redemptive. It brings life. It frees us from the very thing that enslaves us. So that, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, that on the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread, and when he had broken it, let me find my place here, when he had broken it, he would given thanks. He said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me.